Let's pray. Lord, again, we thank you uh, for your word. We thank you for we thank you for giving us uh, the revelation of yourself, uh, so that we might know you and that we might know ourselves, that we might know the world that we live in, that we might have true understanding. But Lord, we also know that we are still utterly dependent creatures. Uh, help us, Lord, to see that, to remember that, to live in the light of that, and to always rely upon you for truth, uh, for your in, for your the work of your Spirit in us. And uh, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. amen. My topic this afternoon is sex and holiness. And of course, anytime you say the word sex, it gets everybody's attention. And uh, I'll have a lot to say about that in the next hour, uh, if I can get it all in in that time. This is a big subject. Uh, Most subjects are big um, when we think about it. Rosaria Butterfield, who I recommended anything she's written, you ought to read. Uh, If you haven't, I urge you to do so. Uh, She was uh, a leader in the LBGT movement, and God converted her. One of her books is called The Gospel Comes with a House Key, and where she talks about a pastor and his wife who invited her over for dinner. Uh, She's an academic uh, college professor, and that act of kindness and love, was she didn't know it at the time, but was the beginning of God working in her life uh, many years ago. She's now a pastor's wife, I think mother of six and uh, written some excellent books, a good theologian. I want to start with a quote from her. If God is the creator of all things, if that's true, and if the Bible has his seal of truth and power, then the Bible has the right to interrogate my life and culture and not the other way around. If God is the creator of all things and the Bible has his seal of truth and power, then the Bible has the right to interrogate my life and culture and not the other way around. So this talk is not just about sex. It is about holiness and sex. Purity is one of the main qualities of holiness. There are other aspects of holiness that we could talk about, but purity is certainly one of them. 1 Peter 1, 14-16, As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lust, as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. So Hebrews 12:14 tells us that without holiness no one will see God. That ought to get our attention. God is pure, God is clean, God is sinless. All sin is a matter of impurity. It's counter to God. <clears throat> And so it's important to recognize for the sake of our current topic that purity is not limited to sexual purity. For example, we can have, as Isaiah talked about in Isaiah 6, he said, I am a man of unclean lips. Our speech can be impure. We can be impure in many, many ways. Therefore, as we address this both narrow topic, the topic of sex, but that in itself is a broad topic, right? It must be seen in the light of its broader context. So we've been talking about holiness in the big sense, and I'm using this topic as an example to focus in on one aspect of our holiness, an important aspect, but it's not the only one. And so there are a few issues, if any, that are impacting the church today more than those surrounding the subject of sex and sexuality. The, central, uh, the centrality and power of sex encompasses a broad range of topics that touch the lives of every individual, every relationship, every family, 
every church, and every community. Our sexuality can be a great force for good, and it can be an equally destructive force. Individuals, marriages, families, and careers die every day due to sexual matters. Many more are harmed beyond belief. While Hollywood glamorizes certain aspects of sex, it denies many others. Generally, it offers a picture of what uh, a picture which is a lie and an illusion. The devil is the father of lies. So children of all ages are being sucked in every day, boys and girls, your siblings, church children, children from godly homes, children in Christian schools, children in home schools, good children, the best children, the children you least expect. The problem is way bigger than most people imagine. That is until it's too late. Then there are only deep, deep sorrows and regrets. As a pastor, and I know this is true of other pastors as well, much of my time is spent dealing with the consequences of various sexual sins. Lust, porn, fornication, adultery, and a very long list of other things that I'll not mention. If you think I'm naive, I'm not. And if you think I'm trying to scare you, I am. To underestimate this danger is to expose yourself and the ones you love to potential ruin. This is fire, and fire is not to be played with. And to add to this, the world is now filled with gas cans. We need real discernment on this subject. Charles Spurgeon said, and I love this quote, it applies to many things. He says, discernment is not simply a matter of telling the difference between right and wrong. Rather, it is the difference between right and almost right. Ignorance isn't bliss. It's deadly. And so I urge you, I beg you to take this very seriously. Save yourself and your family the heartache that comes with getting this wrong and the destruction that comes from that carelessness. Sexual holiness is the path to sexual happiness. Sexual holiness is the path to sexual happiness. We have an enormous problem, an elephant in the room, and the church has been silent for way too long, particularly the evangelical church. She hasn't always been silent, but our current pietism and Gnosticism have pushed us into the corner. And while the world speaks loudly and constantly on this subject of sex, remember I said earlier, the world, everybody is always trying to sell you something, and the world, one of the things they're selling you is a particular version of sexuality and sex. The question is, is it true? And because if it's not true, it will kill you. We need to be questioning these things. But again, the church has been in retreat. The world speaks loudly and constantly. Our only solution has been to retreat, and that strategy is proving to be deadly. I'm not going to touch, except for right this moment, on the subject of abortion. But abortion exists largely, mainly, because of sexual sin. If you want to talk about that later and have me defend that statement, I'll be happy to do so. But we want to have our cake and eat it too. And while the world bombards us constantly from every direction, the world's version of sex seeps into everything all the time. It is uh, in its pastime for us as believers to speak up and to speak out. And so I want to talk to you first about a theology of sex. Theology of sex requires us to think about a sub- any subject. The- theology is simply what God thinks about any subject. And in this case, we want to know what does he think 
about sex. There's a theology of everything. God thinks something, and whatever God thinks about something is the truth, by definition. And so we're called, 1 Corinthians 10.5, to bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. We're to think the way he thinks about the world, because that's the truth. And so we should be looking to use biblical vocabulary, and many of us are uncomfortable with even using the words associated with this subject, which tells us something about what we really think. The Bible, however, has no hesitancy about speaking to this subject, even in what some would refer to as graphic terms. Now, I recognize the need to veil certain things depending on the audience. If you were a 10-year-old, I wouldn't be having this talk. I wouldn't be having this discussion. You're adults, and I'm going to talk to you as adults. Um, certain things need to be veiled. Paul writes in Ephesians 5, 8-14, For you were once darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. That's what we're doing in, in this lecture and throughout this week. And he goes on, he says, And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light, for whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore, he says, Awake, you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. So, the church, which is the pillar and the ground of the truth, is here to shine the light of God's word on the deeds of darkness. And while we should have the discretion not to describe certain things in public, we had better not be ignorant of their existence. One reason our culture is in the sexual mess that it's in is because the church has at times become more prude than God and has not clearly spoken to this essential, central area of life. And when this happens, uh, the world is happy to fill that void. When we don't speak, when we don't teach the truth, when we don't give the right understanding and interpretation of something, the world is more than happy to step in and supply that. For you, and for your children, and for everybody else. Deuteronomy 5, 32-33 instructs us, Therefore, you shall be careful to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or the left. You shall walk in all the ways which the Lord your God has commanded you. Why? That you may live and that it may be well with you. And that you may prolong your days in the land which you shall possess. God's law, God's word, God's standard, God's ethic is given to us because he loves us. Many aspects of sex are personal and private and should remain that way. But many other aspects of sex simply aren't personal or private. They're spoken of in the Bible. There are community and public aspects of sex. In, in fact, one of the myths about sex is that it is only private and that it doesn't impact others. So as long as two consenting adults are together, they can do whatever they want, and it's no one else's business. But that's not true. That's a lie. Certain things are private, but not everything. Certain things should be addressed in a public way. Wisdom directed by God's word is going to enable us to know the difference between those two. The problem comes when we confuse those two. Because some parts are private and personal, we end up not speaking to any of the issues. And so it's essential for us to embrace the sexuality that God has given us in a way that is pure, that is godly, and unashamed. It's important we start with and understand the theology of any subject. Paul usually starts with theology and ends with the application of that theology. And this is why, because ideas have consequences. All ideas have consequences. 
what you believe, what you think, bears fruit. And so we must understand what sex is, why it was created, what are its purposes, what are its goals, what are its benefits, and what are its dangers. These are all things that the Bible clearly addresses. It's our obligation as creatures to conform our thinking to his thinking. And it's not just our sexuality that's impure. Our thinking is impure. So if our sexuality is ever going to be pure, it will be because our thinking was first made pure. We're going to begin to have a biblical perspective on these issues. We're going to look at ourselves. We're going to look at our own sexuality the way God looks at it. We're going to agree with God. We're going to change our way of thinking about these things. And we're not going to simply respond or react or let the culture tell us what we should think or feel. And we're going to have to learn how to think about other people, about the opposite sex and the same sex, We must know what God says. We must adopt those ideas for ourselves. We must root out all the wrong concepts and ideas because we have picked up all sorts of misconceptions from many places, including the Christian community. One of my mentors, Dr. Bonson, used to say, we're all philosophers, but we're not necessarily good philosophers. And we pick up our worldviews, most people pick up their worldviews the way they pick up COVID. We don't want to pick up our worldview that way. We want to pick up our worldview self-consciously from the Word of God. So I don't want to develop my own system. I don't want to be my own God. That'll kill me. So sexuality is central to humanity. Let's start at the beginning. There is, in fact, there it is in the very first chapter of the Bible. Genesis 1, 27-28. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So, as God separated and defined other things in creation, day and night, land and sea, the heavens and the earth, so he divided male and female. These separate things were designed to complement one another, to complete one another. This separation of the sexes was critical to the mandate that God gave them. The task, the job, the duty, the mission. This design is, this gift of sex was one of the most powerful tools to accomplish that mandate. To fill the earth and subdue the earth, it was essential that first they multiply. This requires a man and a woman. Babies must be born. Sin turned this on its head. So the Bible teaches us that marriage is a sexual relationship in the context of a covenant. A covenant is just God God says these are the rules. Here's how this is going to work. Here's the hierarchy. Here are the duties. Here are the responsibilities. Here are the privileges. Here are the blessings. Do this and live. This is where happiness is. This is, when you do it this way, it'll be lovely, beautiful, safe, powerful. So, it, it, so this context, this relationship between one man and one woman, it's in the context of this covenant, again, where there are duties, responsibilities that go along with the sexual privileges and obligations. And we put all those things to, uh, putting all those things together is important because fire in the fireplace is good. Move that out of the fireplace into the middle of the living room floor and it'll burn the house down. Fire itself is not the problem, it's where it is, how it's used. All the difference in the world. There are clear responsibilities that go with our sexuality. So, for example, the Bible says part of this is respect, honor, love. 
we know that the world has a very different view. Nevertheless, these are essential if we're to enjoy the delights of sex, including the intimacy and affections that are God's gifts. Always remember, God invented sex, and what did he call it? Very good. And he wasn't kidding. It was his idea. I have to confess sometimes, it's kind of, I think it's kind of an odd idea. But that's the way he did it. These can only be apprehended, these blessings, when we have the whole package together. The duties and the privileges. This is the only way that our sexuality becomes a true blessing and truly beautiful. Uh, To try and teach history without any reference to the role of sex is to leave out one of the major elements necessary to understand human history. Sexual sin, sexual impurity, is a very powerful and central theme that runs through the story of fallen mankind. It'd be hard to overestimate how big a part sex plays in our individual lives, our families, our churches, and our communities, indeed, in the world It involves everything from procreation to its effects on marriage and personal relationships. It has the power to kill, the power to destroy lives. It drives many decisions that people make, and therefore it is critical that we understand the nature of sexuality. So God created our bodies. He made our sexuality, created the male and female And he has, again, a lot to say about it. In fact, this maleness and femaleness was essential for mankind to accomplish the task of filling the earth and ruling the earth. And just a footnote here, uh, I sometimes talk about this in premarital counseling. How much of you is male and female? We talk about the difference between men and women. They're the obvious uh, uh, biological and physical elements of that. But actually, every molecule of you is either male or female. That's why just changing the exterior doesn't change the truth. So God creates our bodies, uh, our sexuality. Uh, This maleness and femaleness is essential to accomplish the task of filling the earth and ruling the earth. And so when the two are brought together, they become one flesh united physically and spiritually to fill the earth with more godly men and women. That's the goal. In every way, man and woman are made to correspond to each other. Malachi says regarding marriage, but did he not make them one, man and woman, a husband and wife, having a remnant of the Spirit, and why one? Because he, God, seeks godly offspring. That was the original mandate, and Malachi is reminding God's people of that. Before the fall, this untainted sexuality provided a bond for family and society and the foundation for community or communion. Question 10, Westminster Shorter Catechism asks, How did God create man? And the answer God created man, male and female, after his own image, in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, with dominion over the creatures. So the maleness and femaleness he created in holiness. So in the beginning, there was sex. But that sex was both righteous and holy. Man and woman were pure and undefiled. Marriage and the marriage bed would, make, would be the place where this sexual purity could be expressed and propagated. Indeed, as the book of Hebrews still informs us, Hebrews 13.4, marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled, but fornicators, that is people who are having sexual relations outside of marriage, Fornicators and adulterers, that's married people having sex outside of their marriage, God will judge. By the way, judgment comes in a lot of forms. Often, most often it's the thing itself. Uh, so, 
So when sex is in the place where God designed it to be, it is good and glorious, and it's to be received with thankfulness and to be viewed as another good gift from God. This is the original intent. God's Word tells us why He created sex. In Denny Burke's book, What is the Meaning of Sex?, which I commend to you, he points out two categories of the purposes of sex, ultimate and subordinate. The purposes of human sexuality is inescapably bound up with its origin. That account and subsequent scriptural revelations suggest a very clear ultimate purpose for human sexuality. So what is that ultimate purpose? What is man's chief end? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And we could add the addendum with sex. Sex, gender, manhood, womanhood, all of it ultimately is exercised for the glory of God. This isn't merely a theological deduction. It is the explicit teaching of Scripture. God defines the means by which our sexuality will glorify him, and he spells it out in both special and natural revelation, and so we need to pay careful attention to both. Special revelation is scripture, natural revelation is in the way he created the world. In 1 Corinthians 6, 13-18, God reveals that the human body's design reveals some of its purposes. So we can just look at the body, the male and the female body, And it says here, foods for the stomach and the stomach for foods, but God will destroy both it and them. Now, the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? You're attached to Christ. You're in Christ. You're united to him. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Sexual immorality? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Run from it. Get out of Dodge. This revelation, this revealing of God, is no less clear with sexual intimacy than it is with eating. The stomach made for food, the male and female anatomy clearly were made for their own purposes. What could possibly be wrong, people argue, with using our body according to its purpose? Well, this was an argument used by some in Corinth to justify sexual immorality. Paul exposes the foolishness of this argument by pointing out that the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Paul doesn't question the subordinate use of the body for sexual intimacy, but he does say that the body exists for the Lord. That's the ultimate purpose. You belong to him first. By focusing only on the subordinate end of the body, the Corinthians had missed the ultimate end of God's glory. They misconstrued how the subordinate ends must always work in service of the ultimate ends. Our sexuality is not to be expressed for our own sake, but for God's sake. And this means shunning every sexual union outside the covenanted union of one man and one woman in marriage. And when we venture outside of this, we do so at great peril to ourselves and to others. Since the body exists for the Lord, its proper use must be under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. He's the boss of me. He's the boss of you. He owns you. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. In verse 15, Paul begins with two rhetorical questions. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Did you forget that? Shall I then take the members of Christ, the second question, and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. 
With these questions, Paul is telling us that the believer's physical body makes up Christ's own members or limbs, and sexual immorality means that you're involving Christ's body in a sinful act. You represent Jesus in this world. You're Him, wherever you are. You're an extension of Him. I get into the whole explanation. It's the whole book of Acts. Jesus is ascended. He met with His disciples in Jerusalem before He ascends. And He basically says, I'm going to go, I'm going to paraphrase here, I'm going to the throne and I'm going to direct traffic. And you are going to go out into all the world and represent Me. Wherever you go. You, that's Me. Therefore, Paul answers these questions with an emphatic, certainly not. Absolutely not. We are not going to commit sexual immorality. So the subordinate purposes of sex, so the ultimate purpose, glory of God. Subordinate purposes are these. For covenant bonding. Genesis 2.24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, bound together, they shall become one flesh. She, Malachi 2.14, she is your companion and your wife by covenant. It's not good for man to be alone. I'm going to make a helper suitable to him. And so it's a solution for loneliness. It's to bring you into covenant bond, communion. Second, for procreation. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Third, to avoid sin. 1 Corinthians 7.2 Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. And then fourth, but these are not in order of some hierarchy here, for pleasure. Proverbs 5.18 Rejoice with the wife of your youth. Read the entire book of the Song of Solomon. It is an erotic poem of a husband and a wife. Now I want to speak about marital mystery. The Apostle, Apostle Paul says that the mystery of marriage is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. By mystery, Paul means that the full, fullest meaning of marriage is something that was once hidden in the Old Testament to some degree, but has now been revealed in the Gospel. The deepest meaning of marriage is that it is an acted parable of another marriage, and that's the marriage of Christ to his bride, the church. Can anyone really know that definition of marriage apart from God's revelation of this mystery? And I like to remind people, just like the tabernacle was what? It was a, uh, analogous to the real tabernacle in heaven, the real temple. My marriage, Christ in the church is not the metaphor. My marriage is. My marriage is to reflect that marriage, not the other way around. It's not just like a nice little rhetorical device. And so, our sexuality is to be a true representation of Christ and his bride, the church. Thus, sexual sins, that is, doing things our way, is a lie and it's theft. It profanes the name of God and dishonors what God has made holy. The Lord's table, like the marriage bed, is a place of intimacy and covenant renewal. We don't hear this much publicly. We usually think of, I think the Lord's table is a picture of the family dinner table. The father's called his children to eat, to be in communion and fellowship. And that is one of the images. But the other images is Christ and his bride in an intimate relationship. Not just anybody can come. It's Christ and the church. And it's here that we remember we have a perfect husband. We are all the bride of Christ collectively. I'll say something later about when the Bible speaks individually. It'll refer to all of us as, as sons, including the women. We're all sons of God. But collectively, we're all feminine. We're all the bride of Christ. And at the Lord's table, one of the images is that of intimate Union with Christ. So, we bear his name. 
And when we use the sexuality that God gave us, which is ultimately for his own glory, we not only, when we misuse it, we defile ourselves, we also blaspheme or speak poorly evil of his name. So our sexuality is given to bring him glory, but to be used in a manner that pleases him. Now, when it comes, when sexual activity is introduced uh, in a relationship before marriage, everything is thrown into a blender and confusion is the result. So I want to just pause again with another little footnote. Sex is not dirty. It's beautiful. It's very good in the right place. We make it dirty when we take it out of that place and put it where it doesn't belong. A marriage bed is the goal and the only marriage bed, and only the marriage bed, which is undefiled. It's pure. As Robert Capon has pointed out in his excellent book, my favorite book on marriage, called Bed and Board, he says that the bed and the table, the board, room and board, table where you put your food, the bed and the board are the two flat surfaces in your house that are the two central pieces of geography in your house. These are the places of communion and life. Again, like the Lord's table. He says this, sex cannot be practiced until you are married. You will have plenty of time to practice this after you're married. Before that, sex is defiled and only muddies the water of the relationship. In preparation for a lifetime of marriage, a couple is seeking to know God's will for their future, and they are getting to know one another at a fundamental level. They have things to learn about the other person and about themselves. He continues... What you really need to practice is keeping promises. Right now, of course, you wouldn't go to bed with anyone else, but later on. I'm talking about, uh, so here you are with your girlfriend or your boyfriend and you're being intimate before marriage. And you think, well, yeah, but I'm in love with this person and we're going to get married. And so he says, right now, of course, you wouldn't go to bed with anybody else, but later on, It is not always that clear, and then these little exercises in fidelity will be worth something in terms of chastity and trust. And so, this is still Capon, I say, if you haven't so far been chaste, don't let anyone, excuse me, if you have so far been chaste, don't let anyone talk you out of it. And if you haven't been, well... Cut out the compromises. Even a tardy dose of principle is better than none. Now, shifting for the last part of this talk. I want to read a text. 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 8. I'm going to start in verse 1. And I'm going to highly recommend all of you, if I could make you do it, I would, memorize 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 8. Why? Because how shall a young man cleanse his ways by taking heed thereto according to thy word? Psalm 119, 9 and 11. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. This is the text. It's about as direct as it gets for your situation right now and in the near future. Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more just as you receive from us how you ought to walk or live and to please God. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. So that's the preface. And now comes this. And I always like to begin with this question. Who here wants to know the will of God? Alright. Verse 3. For this is the will of God. You want to know it? Here it is. Your sanctification... Your holiness. That's the will of God. And he's more specific. In case you don't know what that means in this context, he says that you should abstain from sexual immorality. 
that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel, body, in sanctification, in holiness and honor. Not in passion of lust like the Gentiles or the unbelievers who do not know God. Don't be like them. You've been set apart. You're holy. That no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother, we would say brother or sister, in this matter. What matter? Sexual immorality. Because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified, for God did not call us to uncleanness, but to holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this, what? Everything we just read, does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. It would be hard to think of a passage of Scripture that speaks more directly to the issues of sexual temptation for a premarital couple than this passage does. It begins with an explicit declaration regarding God's will. It's God's will for you to be sanctified or to be holy. And this means that God intends for us to be set apart from unbelievers and set apart unto Him, including our sexuality. This man and woman are therefore to conduct themselves in a manner that reflects the fact that they belong to God, that Jesus is their Lord. As followers of Jesus Christ, they have already denied themselves, taken up their cross to follow Him, and now in this exclusive relationship as a man and a woman, they are going to extend that self-denial as an act of true love and sacrifice. If you enter into that relationship, a romantic relationship, man or a woman, Of course you desire each other. Of course you're attracted to each other. You are sexual beings. You're a man and a woman. That's the definition of romantic and sexual. Of course you want that. And it's that sense of uh, going for that immediate gratification, getting ahead of the game, is what is destructive. Waiting to get to that, as Pastor Jeffrey illustrated earlier, that highest point in Texas means you're going to have to suffer and sacrifice and deny yourself and do some hard things to get to that place, which is where you want to go, rather than settling for something far, far less. It is not uncommon for a couple who have love and affection for one another to justify sexual activity with one another on the grounds that they are in love. They are committed to one another. And my favorite lie is they're married in God's eyes. (laughs) (laughs) But they're not married in God's eyes until they're married in everyone else's eyes. Not one moment before. There, another footnote here. When I'm doing a wedding ceremony or another minister is, there is a moment in the ceremony where I say, I now pronounce you husband and, not yet, wife. Now, those are magic words. Something just happened. And then I can say, now you can kiss your bride. She's yours now. And he's yours now. And not one second before. This will happen then on the wedding day and not before. Until you are in covenant, you're not married in God's eyes. In fact, the only time you can say with certainty that the other person is your husband or wife is after you're married. Prior to that, this person is potentially your husband or wife or a fiancé. More than a few couples, including engaged couples, have broken up. If If you have been sexually immoral with that person, then you've been sexually immoral with somebody else's future husband or wife. 
And while there must be the commitment to one another, that commitment must be one that obeys God by loving your neighbor in a manner that is consistent with God's will. True love is self-sacrificial, not self-indulgent. True love is holy. Your desire must be channeled to motivate you to glorify God with your body and to obey the boundaries that he has set. So when a guy is trying to be sexual with his girlfriend and he says, I just, I love you so much. The truth is, see, that's a lie. In that moment, when you're wanting to be immoral, the truth is you love you so much. You don't love her so much. If you loved her, you would honor her. You would help her be more like Christ. But right now, you're trying to make her less Christ-like. And I don't think it's one-way street here. Ladies, you like to be desired. You like the attention. So, sexual attraction is powerful, but that's no excuse for you not to be holy. The two most powerful gifts that God gave to Adam and Eve were their minds and their sexuality. And with these two gifts, they were both to rule the earth and fill the earth, and they were both to be used to glorify God. Sin corrupted both of these powerful gifts. They remained powerful, but rather than glorifying God, they became destructive. Think about a chainsaw. Put put a chainsaw in the hands of a guy who knows how to use it and go out and cut down trees and chop firewood or use it in that that manner. It's a great gift. That same chainsaw in the hands of an eight-year-old running through your house is no less powerful but it's a lot more destructive. Sexual sin separates and kills. That's what sin always does. It separates. It doesn't bring you together. It separates. It destroys relationships, marriages, families, and societies. It often leads to guilt, disease, pregnancy, abortion, divorce, and much more. It's important to note that our entire bodies are sexual, not just particular parts of our body. We tend to think of Parts of our body, and, and parts of our body are, have that um, special use for sexuality. But every part of your body is sexual. Sometimes couples are indignant that parents might want them to not have physical contact for a while, particularly in the early stages of getting to know one another. That muddies the water. Sometimes as simple as holding hands, a, a simple act of holding hands is a sexual act. That's why you like it. And don't misinterpret what I'm saying here. I don't have time to develop all this. We can talk later if you like, at least what I think about these kinds of things. I'm not saying couples can't ever hold hands. But I am saying there's a time and a place, and that needs to be managed. There's all kinds of factors that go into that. The maturity of the individuals, the age, how close are you to being able to get married, uh, what is your past history, are you trustworthy. There's all kinds of things that go into this question. But that's, again, why, because holding hands is exciting and feels good, and that's why we want to do it. And it's this, in this context, hugs, sitting close, and so forth, are expressions of sexuality, and it stimulates even more sexual desire. Boundaries, wisdom, and accountability are essential if a couple is to negotiate these waters safely. Sometimes people think, well, their parents are just being prude or the pastor. Oh, we're not going to do anything. We're Christians. Look, the best Christians I know have gotten in trouble here. If you're never in a place where you can fall off the cliff, then you will never fall off the cliff. If you're never in the place where you can fall off the cliff, you won't ever fall off the cliff. If you are where you can fall, you likely will fall. And when it happens, uh, what inevitably is said is, I didn't mean to. You've got to do better than that. You've got to mean not to. That makes sense? You know the difference? You've got to mean not to. That means, look, your parents can have rules. Your pastor can have rules. God has rules. But if they're not your rules, you'll find a way around them. 
and you'll fall off the cliff. We are admonished by this text that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification or holiness and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who don't know God. Now, lust is not just desire. It is inordinate desire. It is sinful desire in this case. I want you to have desire. It's your responsibility, ladies. It's your responsibility, men, individually, to be in control of your body and your passions. Sexual passions often override our brains. And they must not be allowed to do that, which means we cannot allow ourselves to be in places and circumstances where that can happen. It's proper for a husband to, Proverbs 5.19, to always be intoxicated with the love of his wife. Drunk with love. But that intoxication is reserved for marriage. Rather than being under the influence of your passions, you must be under the influence of the Holy Spirit and he would never lead you to sexual immorality. Paul further admonishes that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter. What does defraud mean? To steal. To take what is not yours. It's easy for a couple to take advantage of the other person. They're available. They're attracted to you. Wanting to please. Tempted by their own passions. And so they are ripe for the picking. Don't be deceived. It's not your love for them that's driving this, but rather your love for yourself. The lust of the flesh is one of our great enemies, right? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Our text warns us that to act on this is to defraud our brother or sister. Again, it's to steal, to take what's not ours. She is not your wife. She's not yours. You marry her, in traditional Christian weddings, her father will give her to you, and not a minute before. And until they, are, until they are yours, you may not have them sexually. Sex will be the physical act of the two becoming one flesh. In the covenant of marriage, it is the place of privilege, because it's, the context, it's in the context of duty, responsibility, and lifelong commitment. In marriage, there's a fireplace for the fire. A place where the fires of passion can give comfort and life rather than destruction and death. Disobedience to God always comes with a price. The wages of sin is death. And sin and death always separate. They separate us from God and they separate us from one another. God invented sex, he called it good, and its goodness comes in the context of marriage where it unites and creates communion. I like the term making love. It's a good term in this context. When we violate God's perfect plan, there are always consequences. The Apostle Paul says regarding those who transgress in the area of sexual immorality, and boy, this is powerful in this text. That's why you need to memorize this text. And when I say... When I say memorize, I mean you should memorize it word for word. Don't paraphrase it. Uh, Pick your translation. Test yourself. Write it on a card. Take a week to get it down and then review it every day for six weeks. And you'll never forget it. And then it's right there when you need it. It's on your shoulder. It's that cartoon. You have the devil on one side and the angel on the other. This is the angel. Okay. It's reminding you of what God said. Listen, the Lord is the avenger of all those who transgress in this way as we also forewarned and testified to you. You may think you're alone with one another, but you're not. As one of the children's catechisms questions ask, can you see God? And the answer is one that we should all keep before us. No, but he can always see me. This is why the habit of praying together, every time you're together, is so important. It can be one sentence. Lord, bless us tonight. Pray for my 
I pray for my wife's name is Marinelle. I pray for Marinelle. Thank you for her. Amen. And then she prays for me. And then we have our date, spend time together. It's great if you do that at the end of the day. Remind you, he was there the whole time. Cultivate an awareness of the presence of God. This is, again, a habit of praying together. It helps you cultivate that awareness. Such an awareness also produces the fear of God, which governs and changes our behavior. One of the problems of the world is there's no fear of God before their eyes. And the text says, For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. You're first and foremost a Christian. Remember I said, looking for a husband or a wife, first thing, they have to love Jesus. Here's a great place to find out who's the boss. You're first and foremost a Christian. Jesus is your Lord. You're called to be like Him. You represent Him. Moreover, you're called to help one another be like Him. And that's what sanctification or holiness is all about. Uncleanness or sexual immorality is the opposite of holiness. Hebrews 13.4 again, Marriage is honorable among all, the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. As husband and wife, you're called to a lifetime of faithfulness to God and to one another, and that faithfulness begins now. Faithful in little things, so you'll be faithful in the big things. Keeping promises now, so you will be confident that promises, the promises you make on your wedding day will also be kept. One of the things I've done with couples... I've taken this passage and turned it into a set of vows. I promise that I will not commit sexual immorality with you until we're married. Wow. Well, is he going to keep his promise? Are you going to keep yours? That's what you need to know. Because you're, when you're married, there's going to be some hard days and hard times, and you need to know, I, I can trust this person because how do I know? Because they've shown me. They can keep their word. If you play loose around the edges now, why would anyone expect you to do differently later? Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man but God. This is a serious warning. This is way more than my advice as a pastor. This is way more than your parents' rules. This text explicitly lays before you what God's will is for you in this area of sex. It is clear. It is unequivocal. And this is why, again, strongly suggest you memorize this. David, uh, well, I've already mentioned that. David asked this question. Well, no, I already quoted that from Psalm 1, I think. Hiding God's word in your heart so that it's ready at hand when you need it uh, to your success in this area of your life. This is the sword of the Spirit. Don't tell me or anyone else that you are struggling with temptation if you haven't taken the concrete step to actively engage in the struggle. Scripture memory, prayer, rules for boundaries, and accountability to others are all necessary if you are to successfully negotiate these rough waters. And I want to conclude with this. I am so thankful that this text contains this last reminder. Because sometimes I would look at this and think, that's impossible. And this reminder is referring to God who has also given us his Holy Spirit. Good thing. God hasn't left you alone. Your sexual passions are not a raging monster that you can't control. God has given you all that you need to keep your passions where they belong. 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20 Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. There's another great passage to memorize. If you belong to Him, body and spirit, and you have been given the Holy Spirit to empower you to do what you otherwise could not do, these are supernatural powers. So that God has taken away all excuses for failure. 
You know what to do. You know how to do it. You've been given help to do it. So now, all you have left is to want to do it. Father, we thank you for these instructions about our sexuality, about sex, about this critical and important thing, this gift that you've given to the world, to us. Help us now to honor you, to be holy people. I pray for every person in this room. We're all sexual beings. We all have desires. Help us, Lord, to honor you with our bodies so that we might know the glories, the satisfactions, the blessings that you intended for our sexuality. Help us to be pure and chaste in our thoughts and with our bodies. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.